Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today, I'm delighted to feature a Seattle-based author, and if you're a regular listener, you've heard lots from her on this podcast, as she's one of our most popular in-store interviewers. We're celebrating Erin Goyaga's latest cookbook, Canel et Vanille. I first met Erin seven years ago when she released her first cookbook and came to visit us from Florida. She's since moved to Seattle, where she's become a sought-after food stylist and photographer with a wildly popular Instagram account. And I'm very grateful that she's also been a tremendous supporter of Booklarder, doing lots of in-store signings and author interviews, and sharing with me a mutual obsession with British cookbooks. Her latest book covers everything you need to know to stock your pantry, cook meals for family, and entertain friends. It happens to be gluten and dairy-free, but even if you use those ingredients in your kitchen, you'll love the flavors and recipes in this book. Erin and I talked in her kitchen in Seattle earlier this month. Here's Aaron Goyaga and Canel Avenil. So thank you so much for having me in your kitchen today. Oh, so gorgeous. Thanks for coming over. It's so cold out. It's, it's so beautiful and sunny, though. It's like just the perfect morning. You've made this beautiful apple cake, which is just exactly the kind of thing you want to eat on a day like this. And we have ginger tea. It's all perfect. And congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Seven years between books. Seven years. <laughs> I was actually thinking about that the other day. Don't they say that the cells in your body regenerate every seven years or you, you change every seven years? And I thought, well, maybe I should wait another seven years <laughs> to get a good idea. But um, yeah, I'm really slow actually in my process, I think. I think because I really want it to be meaningful and mm -hmm. thoughtful mm -hmm. and I want to have a point of view that's very unique or, or just that it makes sense that it's truthful to what I'm feeling. Yeah. I think it just takes a long time for that to develop. You kind of have to go through the highs and the lows and all of that and kind of build what you want to say and think about it and edit it before you even start writing a proposal or anything. You have to kind of think about what you're doing. It kind of dictates a little bit of how the book will reach people. Yeah. This is yeah. How, how you've thought about it for a while. And also the recipes have to be part of your life. I mean, a lot of the recipes in the book are from my childhood. So it's not like I had to invent them. Uh, they're part of my weekly repertoire, but also just, you know, how you feel like the recipes are really, all of them are meaningful and then yeah. they are like, they make sense together. And I think it's really about working on that and then editing things that don't work out. And so that all of that takes so much yeah. time. And what did you want to say with this book? I think I wanted to talk about how cooking has always been not always, actually. Um, it has been part of my life since I was born, since my grandparents were chefs and they had this bakery across the street from where I grew up. So it, it was kind of a family-defying thing we had and what we did. Then I went through a period where I talk about, uh, talk about it in the book where I had an eating disorder. So food and cooking became kind of something a little forbidden. Uh -huh. Even though I cooked, but it, I would cook for other people, but I wouldn't eat the food. There was kind of a period where food was like every all-consuming, but not always in a positive way. When I kind of recovered from this, when I decided, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be connected to my roots and my family and my background through this thing that they did. And I was trying to rebel against, but I wanted to also be part of it, but I do it in my own way. And from what I had learned, how important food was for me to use it as a healing 
way. So long story short, I wanted to talk about this journey a little bit, not necessarily about the details of the eating disorder or anything like that, but just how cooking and being around a table can be so connecting. I was listening to Diana Henry's podcast with you, and she was t- saying how uh, the table, sometimes people idealize and romanticize the table, right? And, yeah. And I agreed with her in some ways, but at the same time, I do think it's a place. And it doesn't have to be like the most magnificent table or the most beautiful or have these linens or anything. It's just having a warm place where people feel welcomed, it just really changes you know, it can really change you and it can really open you up and you can get to know people in a different way. And I think that's what it was about. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you grew up in Spain and obviously that's a culture where the table is so central to so much Mm -hmm. of life. And you grew up in a food family, bakers, but also like your dad liked forage, you mentioned Mm -hmm. in the book and things like that. So how have you tried to carry or have you tried to carry some of the way you were raised into sort of your own home and your own family? I mean, it's inevitable because it's the only, I mean, it just, it goes on all the habits. I can't say this is every day. It's like this because sometimes, you know, I'm a freelance food stylist and I shoot. And so I, I can't always do this. And I'm, when I say this, I'm not trying to make people who don't do this feel bad. That's like, I, I never want to make people feel bad because they're not doing what I'm doing, but I have a flexible job. And my mom, who also worked outside of the home, she worked in the bakery the first thing she would do is she would make lunch. So in the U.S., people don't really gather for lunch as much, but when I was growing up, everybody would go home for lunch. Uh So my dad, even though he was an engineer and he was working in the city, he would come home for a couple hours and have lunch and take a little nap. (laughs) And uh, so we would all gather at home. So lunch was a big meal. And my mom always made, always had lentils or like a pot of vegetable soup or something was always being made in the morning. So that's kind of what I do now. I mean, I don't have one now if you look at the stove, but I probably will after this. No, but there's freshly baked bread. There's a freshly made cake. I mean, you know. It was a priority. (laughs) So I grew up with that example of being a priority, cooking been a priority. And so I can't, I think it's something that I just had as a, some like a mirror. So I, I, I can't erase that from my DNA and from the way I was raised. Food is like number one thinking about what you're going to shop, what you're going to prepare. And it's still, my mom will text me and this is the first thing she'll tell me. I made this, blah, blah, blah. We went to the market, we found so much. It's like ever all consuming conversations about food. And it is my heritage in Spain, especially in the Basque country where I'm from. I mean, food and soccer are like <laughs> <laughs> the biggest, like it's all people talk about. Yeah, yeah. What I do is that I really make it a priority uh-huh. and, uh, and it's not, my kids sometimes like lentils again, or, you know, like I don't struggle thinking about things, what to make or, but I have some things that are essential and I just make them and I make sure that there's always food. Yeah. But again, I know that I'm, you know, it's my job. It's like, if I were a model, I'd be in the gym or if yeah, I were an yeah. architect, I'd be yeah. thinking about taking drives to, you know, it's my job. So I don't ever want to make people feel bad if that's not, they don't have time to do it all the time. But I, so I understand, I understand the constraints of other other people's lives and time. Yeah. What was it like growing up with a bakery? I mean, I would think, you know, a lot of kids would think that was the dream. It was kind <laughs> of amazing, actually, in so many ways, because it was a place to go. Like, I always had a place to go. And there was always people there. So my grandparents were there. My mom was always there. It only closed on Tuesdays. And so Tuesdays were always 
I remember as a kid, I didn't like Tuesdays because I didn't have the bakery to go to. And I was always afraid, like, what if my mom's not home? The bakery is closed. Like, what if I get lost? I, I had a lot of trauma around Tuesday. I had a lot of traumas, but not traumas, but a lot of anxiety. Too. Yeah, yeah. But Tuesday was a big one because the bakery was closed. And so it was great. I mean, we ate a lot of pastries, I have to say. I ate a lot of wheat, but I was always constipated. Oh. <laughs> like that was like one of my childhood signs of like, maybe wheat is not a good thing for you. But it was warm. It was always warm, welcoming. There were always all kinds of people there. And I talk uh -huh. about this a lot, but it was, and it was a small town. So it's not like we had, you know, uh, celebrities or anything, but there would be like priests there that would come and talk to my grandma and my grandma would give them like a cream puff. And then they would sit and the, we had two kitchens. So it was a storefront and there was the actual pastry kitchen where my grandfather and my uncles worked. And that was kind of a serious kitchen. So you didn't really talk or they were quiet. Very much like a, how kitchens are, where it's just like a routine, there's a discipline. But then we had the family kitchen or where, you know, we cooked food for everybody or my grandmother pasteurized the milk. There was a big stove. So that's where we all gathered. And I remember it being really big, but it wasn't. So my grandmother was always there with her apron on and just making something. And so people would come to the back. Her name was Meaden. They would talk to Meaden. And, you know, the Basque country was very politically divided and just a lot of drama all the time. So other people would come in, like the young people that were my aunt's friends that were sort of like the radicals of the town. And they would hang out there with the priest. And But everybody knew each other. So not to romanticize, but it was kind of idyllic in, in that way of like lots of conversation, lots of interaction, always something being cooked. My grandmother always had like fried eggs or she would open like a jar of tuna she had preserved uh, with olive oil the summer before and she'd make a quick salad in the Basque country and in Spain too. But um, we have a word which is amaiketaco, which means elevens. How is it? Elevenses. Elevenses. Yeah. And so she would always have something going like some sort of sandwich or like a baguette with something. So there was always food, very humble. Also, being a baker wasn't anything like it is today. Yeah, yeah. You know, which it isn't even today. But a lot of people probably romanticize the idea of chefs and the yeah. life of a chef. But it was very humble, working class, just really thoughtful. Like my grandparents, especially my grandfather, nobody had a ton of extra money or anything, but he loved good things. Uh -huh. He loved the table. He loved like one piece of jewelry, but it would be like amazing. Or he just had really good taste. Like when he could get caviar or when he could get lobster, it would be not all the time. Or like right. the steak. I talk about the steak too. My grandmother would go across the street to the butcher. You know, they didn't eat steak every day. But when she did, it was like she would look through all the pieces. She would ask him, can you go in the back and bring me the best piece? And I think this is very true for a lot of Southern European uh -huh. countries like France and Italy. People are really into the quality of what they're eating. Yeah. Uh, and everybody knew each other back then. So you could kind of be straightforward and ask yeah. for what you wanted and yeah. Nobody was trying to be nice, but everybody was friendly, you know. So it's that's so what it was like. And then my friends would come by, you know, after school, we'd stop by. And I think all my friends were kind of jealous that I was from the bakery. And that's how people would identify me. Like, if I was on the street and there were some grandmas and they didn't know who I was, maybe I was like a friend of their grandchild. <laughs> they'd be like, oh, she's from the bakery. They were not my bakery. Yes. <laughs> so that's kind of how I was from the bakery. And it was really kind of a big stamp. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm very independent in some way that I loved it. But at the same time, I was like, hey, I'm my own person. Uh, but it was like that until even now, if I go. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're 
Nakane's daughter, like uncle's granddaughter. So I'm always defined by my family in that way. Yeah. yeah. It's so interesting to hear you describe the environment there and the fact that it was very social and people stopped by because now, you know, you have your studio where obviously you use it professionally, but it's also like a lovely place where I've gone to meet you there before and it was around lunchtime and you just sort of whipped up a beautiful omelet and, you know, served a little salad while we talked and you've just described something that I think is very much you now, as well as your grandfather appreciating beautiful, fine objects, you know, even if it's just one, that's very much, I think a lot of what you have kind of carried into your adult life too. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not trying. I mean, I think it just comes from them. Yeah. From having lived that and watched that. And, uh, I like the humbleness and I like the mix of like beauty and really humble things. Mm-hmm. And just like that, like the discipline of beautiful things. And I don't know if that makes sense, but just like sort of like that Japanese sense too, of letting things be what they are, but not like that wabi-sabi. Yeah. Wabi-sabi, but also in everything that we do, you know, like not be too showy. I think that just comes from my background, but just being humble, but do beautiful work and just have a discipline of work. And I don't mean discipline in like a negative way, but just, I think discipline is a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's very mindful and everything that you do has sort of like that you transcend through your work and you reach people through what you do when you touch. I don't know. Yeah. That's yeah. Why I'm, I'm driven by that. Yeah. Well, and I think that really comes across in the book too, because obviously, you know, you're a photographer, it's very beautifully photographed, but I don't think there's anything fussy, you know, like it's a very approachable book. I said to you earlier, you know, if you just could have one book in a kitchen, you could cook for a long time just out of this book. You've gone deep into the pantry all the way through entertaining and dessert. Was that deliberate? Is that sort of how you think about your kitchen? Because my life, my days are in the kitchen. There's different tones of what I do, different, whether it's by myself or something that's really casual. I mean, my kitchen is always casual. You'll never see anything super fancy being made, but some things that are more time consuming, some things you can have people help you and participate in it. So I kind of wanted to show the range of that a little bit. But I'm very unfussy now. So I wanted everything to be really unfussy and really take anything that wasn't necessary, especially in baking, you know, with gluten-free baking, there's always the temptation of adding all these flowers and all these things, which I love. And I have a pantry with all the jars and everything, but I want people to go to a recipe and want to make it and that they have all the things to make it. So you do have to build a bit of a little bit couple more ingredients probably than just using all-purpose wheat flour, but I didn't want it to feel too intense mm-hmm. or, or too complex because really none of the food that I make is, it's not terribly layered because Basque cooking is actually really very, very simple. Like there's not a lot of layer of flavors or ingredients. So I think that's just the way it's like a palette of like just very simple, um, very simple techniques yeah. too. Yeah. You're gluten-free and dairy-free at this point as at well. This point. The book is not dairy-free, but I offer a lot of alternatives. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was interesting is you invite people who aren't gluten-free to just use wheat flour, yeah. which I thought was very welcoming. <laughs> I am not about telling people what they shouldn't do. I don't like people telling me what I shouldn't do yeah. either, but it just so happens that I eat gluten-free. And I think actually more and more people are finding that if they're finding themselves with some sort of health issue or inflammation, 
they realize that maybe cutting back on not only wheat, but other things, sugar, mm-hmm. whatever. And, and I don't think these are things that you can sustain forever. You should sustain forever. But I do think that they're good resources to help you get through something yeah, like yeah. a health issue or whatever. But at the same time, if you don't have an issue with gluten, then, and if you have all purpose flour, and here's a way you can, you can use it, which in cakes and things like that, it's so simple. With the bread recipes, with the yeast bread recipes, is you can't just simply switch it because the breads are formulated to be used with psyllium husk. And so it, it, you can't really make a one-to-one conversion right. with the yeast breads. But the cakes are really simple to change. And the same with if you're allergic to nuts and you can't have, I use almond flour, you can't have almond flour. Then just use more sorghum or more brown rice flour, whatever right. you have in hand. Most of the recipes are really forgiving. You wrote really beautiful personal stories in the book as well. And I really appreciated you incorporate some of your own sort of mindfulness practice in mm-hmm. the book. Tell me more about how you got into making that time for just a little space in your day. Well, again, this is not an absolute and this is not like what everybody should be doing or that I even do every single day with like rigidity or the discipline of a yogi because I don't. But I think as I'm getting older, I'm really becoming really mindful of everything that I do because I think time is precious. <laughs> I see it with my children. Yeah. And um, I used to spend a lot of time in the past or in the future or just really thinking about, oh, I wish it were like this or I wish it were like that. So I think understanding that this is all I have and I need to focus on today I try to really have a bit of meditation. I don't do transcendent meditation. I don't do anything like that. And it's not even going into a trance or, (laughs) you know, soul traveling or anything like that. It's just really, for me, it's like actually about breathing and feeling. It is kind of weird because I do it with my kids at night. We breathe and I make them kind of visualize every single organ, uh-huh. even though they might, I don't even know where all my organs are. But I talk to my, I talk to my body because I'm also very much in my head. So I need to really think about my organs and I think about my hands and my, all the internal organs and my feet. And, and that's really what I do. I don't do anything, you know, that nobody else can do. Yeah, that yeah. It takes all this practice or, so I do that. And then my mom, I don't know if she wants me to reveal this, but we, we come from a family of constipation. <laughs> and also, actually, in my family, bowel movements and conversations about bowel movements are important because everybody asks you how you're doing. If yeah. somebody, like one of my American friends would come visit us, you know, if somebody had diarrhea or something, everybody would start talking about it and they'd offer remedies and they'd be mortified. Like, your family's talking about my diarrhea. And you're like, well, what? It's like they're trying to help you. But anyway, she started doing the warm water with honey. And at first it was apple cider vinegar in it. Actually, she would have me bring it from the U.S., the Bragg's. Oh, right, right, because it's live. Yeah, because yeah, it has the a live culture. culture. Yeah. But now she only uses lemon. So she does honey, lemon, and water every morning. And I started doing that myself, too. And it just kind of helps me. It's a little ritual. And then I have coffee. But I do that in the morning. And then at night, I really try to do a similar thing and have a little bit of gratitude for the day. Uh-huh. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes I feel a little rushed, but I, I know I always feel better when I'm, when I go through the day and I think about all the things and, uh, 
I'm also trying to think when things don't go my way, I'm kind of like waiting for what is coming that I thought was going to come and didn't come, but I'm, I'm open to something else is going to come. That's going to be what I need. So I'm kind of more, I think, becoming more spiritual. It's, I don't like the word spiritual because it has some woo-woo or religious connotations. It's not what I'm talking about. It's just maybe more being connected, what I'm supposed to be doing. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say that that's a constant because I am very much a person who is, flight, how do you say, fight or flight? Fight or fight. Or fight. Fight or flight. Yeah. Uh, instincts. Yeah. So it's very easy for me to be overwhelmed or carried away with things. And then I have to like hide in my house for a day. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm a very true introvert. So even though I love being with people, but yeah. I do need time to decompress at home and be at home. And how does cooking fit into all of that? Well, that's like the ultimate grounding thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like the other, I can't remember, because with the book launch and I started to feel like airheaded because I'm talking to people and I'm really trying to answer all the questions, Instagram and addressing everybody that took time to buy this book and come to the event and all those things. And I was like, I need some mushrooms. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I went to the farmer's market and bought myself some mushrooms and I made some mushroom and eggs from the book. And then I made a squash soup. And it's just like, I know that's what I need. I need some chicken stock and some mushrooms and some squash, like really rooted things and yeah. warm things. Yeah. Because it's what I'm, my family always made. Things like that when it was winter and we needed to just feel cozy and comforting. Those were our comfort foods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you do all of the photos in your gorgeous book. How did you get into photography? I got into photography through blogging. I realized that when I was photographing, I didn't know what I was doing. I had these ideas, what I wanted, but I didn't know how to actually translate that vision into an actual photo. So then I started studying it a little bit more. I started looking at books and magazines and things that I responded to. And I didn't really know anything about commercial photographers, really, uh, especially in food. I never, when I bought cook, cookbooks, I never looked at who photographed it. I did, it was like a total different yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Um, so I started through that, and then, then I realized, well, that's a good way for me to really create a little visual story in a world. Yeah. Kind of moody, kind of yeah. painterly a little bit. If I take a photo and it doesn't feel cozy or moody or painterly, I probably won't share it. Like I'll probably reshoot it. So it has those characteristics. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, I think it's also been interesting because you started, as you mentioned in, in blogging and just observing your work over several years, it seems like it's gone from being more sort of about the writing to, to incorporating much more visually you know, mm-hmm. and you shoot, you shoot photos for other people now. Mm-hmm. And so how does it differ sort of shooting your own book versus doing someone else's photographic work? Yeah. I mean, when you're working for somebody else, you have to listen to what their message is. But I have to say, I think I'm hired most of the time for what I like. Yeah. So I wouldn't say I'm a for hire. For, I mean, I am for hire for photographer and I hope people hire me more. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I'm saying is that people come to me because they respond to what I do. Yeah. So they want to incorporate a little bit of that into their project. Mm -hmm. But of course, when you're collaborating, everything comes out differently. But when I work for myself, it's really interesting. I get really mad. I have this fight with myself to really get things out that I want. And if they're not how I see them, 
or because the light's not working out or, or sometimes I really get frustrated with myself. But I love it. It's, it's almost like a really physical, and it's very physical, actually. I was going to say it's emotional, but also very physical. Yeah. You're just like getting on a ladder and moving things around. And when I was shooting, a lot of the photos there with me in them, well, a lot of the portraits were shot by my friend Dorothy Brand. There mm -hmm. like three or four portraits, who's amazing. But then a lot of the things that like me with a hand or something, I did it with a remote shutter. Oftentimes, I can't really remember what shot in the book, but I actually had the remote shutter in my mouth and I was pressing the button with my teeth or my tongue <laughs> while I was holding, you know, and I had a tethered monitor so I could see what was coming out of the camera. Uh-huh. But I love that too. I like doing things like I like having a hand at everything. And I think that's how you kind of get sometimes for people to feel like it's really you. Yeah. Because it's all of it. It's not perfect in every way. It's not the perfect writing. It's not the perfect photography. They're not the perfect recipes. And I'm sure other people could do it better, but I think it is all me. And don't we just crave to see the truth of people? I feel like I don't want to oh, see any more perfect. I want to see who you are about or, you know. Yeah. And we're, of course, not everybody's going to connect with it. But when you do connect with something, I think it's more, it's a lasting bond. Yeah. You're, you're making a bond that doesn't really break easily when you do connect with someone. So your work has become very influential. And who are your influences? Oh my goodness. So many. Sometimes I don't like to answer that question because I, I get really nervous if I'm going to leave, leave someone, someone out. out. <laughs> yeah. Because there are so many people. Yeah. I mean, Diana Henry, I love her so much. Everything that, I, that I've said now, she does, even though she doesn't shoot her own books. But I think she's gotten that perfect partnership with Laura Edwards and her um, editor, everything, her art director, everybody she works with, which is, I think, an old team. Yeah. And I said something on Instagram the other day that everything in her work has a bit of melancholy. And she said, she responded, she's like, but that's not what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but I meant that with the biggest compliment. It has a soulfulness, maybe that would be right. a word that she likes more, but she's a big influence. And uh, I love Heidi Swanson. Her mm -hmm. books make me so happy. And it, they're really an extension of her, of like, she's so sunny, so fresh, so light. When I see some of her recipes, I'm like, God oh, damn, I wish I would have thought of that. She's just so good with simplicity, but also adding something that's really interesting. Um, I love Gentle and Hires, uh -huh. photographers. I right. mean, some of my favorite books have been photographed by them. I love British cookbooks. Anna Jones's book, a modern, the last one. Modern Cook's Year. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I can't always remember all the titles. No, that's okay. But that was one of my favorites uh, last year. Yeah. Just also very clever. Hetty McKinnon, who I love. Um, Amy Chaplin, uh, Sarah Copeland. I call them all my friends. So I hope I'm not leaving anybody. Ashley, like all the friends, so many friends. Yeah. Don't text me if I haven't mentioned your <laughs> Well, thank you so much well, for taking you. the time this and great. inviting me to your gorgeous kitchen. Oh. Many thanks to Erin Goyaga for inviting me into her kitchen for cake, tea, and a chat. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Canel A. Vanille and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. And we do have signed copies of many of the featured books, including Canel A. Vanille, so be sure to get one of those while they last. If you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. 
Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.